Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast where each week I discuss practical, simple, and scientifically backed ways to help you take back control of your mental health, help others, and ultimately live your happiest life. In this episode, I am interviewing Ali Miller. Ali Miller is an integrative functional medicine practitioner and registered dietitian. Ali's mission is to help patients achieve optimal mental and physical health using food, supplements, and knowledge. She's the author of several amazing books, including The Anti-Anxiety Diet, and she's a renowned expert on the keto diet and hormonal and adrenal balancing. In this interview, we discuss optimal eating plans for combating anxiety, how to heal hormonal imbalances, hot flashes in both menopause and from hormonal imbalances, supplements, how probiotics are nature's Prozac, how to combat adrenal fatigue, how to do keto correctly, and carb cycle, and so much more. Just before we start, I want to thank everyone again who has left a review, subscribed to this podcast, and shared it on social media and with friends and family. Not only does your feedback help me improve each episode, but I love seeing what you guys are learning and your takeaways. It's so encouraging and so exciting. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a review. The cost of this podcast is you sharing and subscribing. One more note before we begin. This interview was recorded remotely, so the audio quality may be a little scratchy in some areas. Now, back to today's episode. Ali, before we begin with some of the many questions I have for you, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you that's not in your bio? You know, why do you do what you do and what got you started? Because I'm fascinated with what you do. Sure. So I've always been really into using the body as a way of expressing the soul and really connecting those two pieces. I was a dance major initially, um, so that wasn't Mm. in my bio. (laughs) Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. So I was really always looking at my body as almost a machine and how I could use food to fuel it and optimize its performance. But it wasn't until I went off to college and learned more about sustainable agriculture and eating locally and really determining that a lot of the foods I had grown up eating were more products (laughs) as opposed to whole real foods. And that's when I started to really delve into this food as medicine approach. And that's when I sought out Bastyr University, which is a naturopathic college of medicine and started my studies in functional medicine. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'm so pleased to hear that because that's certainly the approach that I've adopted as well. Uh, So I'm very excited to hear that. So based on that, now you've practiced functional medicine. Tell us a little bit about your practice, how it works. Sure. So I kind of think of myself as the detective of the body, if you will. (laughs) I like that. 
Yeah. So when I'm working with a new client, I spend 90 minutes with them really getting to intimately understand how their body functions. You know, what functional medicine is, is really addressing the root causes of chronic conditions and trying to understand the triggering events or the ahas of how we got where we are today. So we can work upstream and resolve versus downstream to just symptom manage. And I have found in my over 10 years of clinical experience that as I do an intake on structural health, which might be, you know, the bones and joints and ligaments or the skin, hair and nails, or my assessment on the digestive tract and the deep dive we go into beyond how formed your stool is and what it looks like. And if you'd experience bloating or distension and all of those things, that stress is really one of these overlooked um, experiences or normalized, I guess, experience within the individual where many people would score on their intake forms, maybe moderate stressed um, and uh, or not acknowledge stress at all. And then as I would deep dive with them and ask them about clenching in their jaw or tension in their neuromuscular system or connect the dots of their chronic constipation or their anxiety and really connecting this picture that I have created this hypothesis and this mission that I, I find anxiety or unmanaged chronic stress to really be the Achilles heel to whole body wellness because it keeps us wired in this survival reactive mode. And that creates dysfunction in all of our regulatory systems. So whether we're talking about metabolism, hormones, sleep, immune, and so much more. Oh, you're speaking my language. I've been, <laughs> I've been researching the mind-brain connection for 30 years and do clinical trials and things as well. And what you've just said now is just so important and so, so good. So based on what you've just said, what are some of the major health issues people see you with? It's really across the board. So I do work predominantly with women. So I do a lot of hormone management, whether we're coming in with PCOS or endometriosis or unknown hormone dominance or after long-term use of birth control, having low hormone production pathways or amenorrhea, as well as gentle hormone transition in the perimenopausal process. And there's so much of that connected to the HPA axis, which is that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal. Again, this fight or flight mechanism of the body, we actually call it now the HPAO or HPAT or HPAG, referring to ovary, testes, or gonads, uh, because there is such an interwound connection of hormone expression and the stress response. And you know, now with my work, since I put out the anti-anxiety diet and more recently the anti-anxiety diet cookbook, people are coming to me now knowing that, oh, I'm identifying that maybe after all these things that I've tried downstream, whether it was, I work with a lot of autoimmune for instance as well, and uh, inflammatory conditions and neurological conditions that we're all kind of starting to acknowledge, what if I was better able to harness the wild stallion of the brain? <laughs> what if I was able to really understand how to get my microbiome to work for me and unpacking these deep connections on whole body health? Oh, fantastic. That's just so interesting and so important. And I love the fact that you are looking at the whole person, so vitally important. Um, are there any issues in particular that have you really concerned and that you see more of in this day and age, this crazy technological busy age? 
Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, and, and being a, mo- I'm a mother of a three and a half year old. So I, I think that the epidemic, and I don't use that word lightly, of child obesity and also ADHD and behavioral concerns, as well as anxiety in youth is so deeply connected to a couple things. But one, I see highly connected to processed foods, both the connection of a lot of the additives, which some of them are known neurotoxins, excitatory compounds that really can interfere with processing in the brain. We see children on these blood sugar roller coasters because they're eating excessive refined carbohydrates, starting in their first foods of being fed grain cereal and really lacking protein and fat followed up with these squeeze packs of carbs of, you know, whether it's applesauce or you name it, followed by juice boxes and X, Y, Z. So we see these carbohydrate spikes and crashes creating a lot of irregularities and then driving that non-alcoholic liver and the metabolic uh, insulin resistance pathways, driving diabetes. And I think that a lot of the children today One of my kind of first turnkey changes with parents, and I always encourage prior to medication intervention, is optimizing their diet by getting them enough protein and fat, because that's really, it sounds more simple than it is, but but I think that that's really an area of a void. And and we can see that in, in adults as well, of course, you know, there's, we're just over bombarded with carbohydrates and we have to be really focused on getting fats and getting protein because fats are so grounding. Um, you know, our brain is comprised predominantly of fat and fats can be very anti-inflammatory. They can be very supportive of hormone balance and can mitigate those blood sugar spikes by blunting the glycemic index. And then proteins are so important because not only do they support growth and development and active metabolic tissue muscle, but they have the amino acids that play a role with balancing out our neurotransmitters. And that's what creates satiety and concentration and focus and really can stabilize behavior patterns in children as well. You know, it's so interesting listening to you say all of this because I practiced for 25 years and when I started practicing, which was the mid 80s, I don't practice anymore. I I basically teach the whole mind-brain connection around the world. But basically, I saw the change of diet happening in front of my eyes because it was 30 years ago that we, that the, or 40, 50 years ago that the industrialized food movement began, as you know. And people went from, honestly, in the 80s, I still had patients that were eating a whole food diet, a real food diet. And then there was a shift and a change. And suddenly they were eating you know, more and more processed foods, more and more medications. And the kind of problems we see now are were predicted in the and at that time. And so it's, it's been very interesting for me to actually watch this happen. And now seeing this result that was predicted, you've just described it exactly what is happening now is exactly what was predicted. And we have to go back to basics. We have to go back to whole food, real food, to address the whole system. It's, it's really very, very good that you're doing what you're doing. So it's, it's a battle. Yeah, <laughs> it's a battle. I know. I tell you, I talk about this kind of thing all the time and I teach on mental health and, you know, it's so much easier to, you know, people just don't want to hear this, you know, and, and even though there's so many people teaching what you're teaching and teaching what I'm teaching, it's very difficult to actually get people to, you know, listen and to take that responsibility. 
So you've got this great program and book called The Anti-Anxiety Diet, and you did mention it, and we're going to put it in the show notes. Can you share you know, what this is and share some tips? Sure, of course. So this came on that premise of you know anxiety being the, again, Achilles heel, if you will, to all body wellness. And so I went in writing the book, the, the first book, The Anti-Anxiety Diet is a nonfiction read, really deep, dense science and strategy. And I went into it using six different approaches that each of the six has its own chicken and egg relationship of a driving cause or perpetuating response of anxiety. So it is all in ours, probably just to be sexy, but (laughs) it's uh, removing inflammatory foods, resetting the microbiome, repairing the gut and gut lining, restoring micronutrient status. And in that chapter, I talk about mood stabilizing minerals, the importance of methylated B vitamins and and, uh, amino acids. And then the last two R's are rebounding the adrenals that connects, you know, beyond the primary stress hormones of cortisol and DHEA, how the adrenal glands also make our catecholamines or our neurotransmitters of our fight or flight stress response, which is that dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. And then in that final chapter, rebalancing the neurotransmitters is when I really dig into the symphony of expression of all of our neurotransmitters. And just like a symphony, if you know one instrument is playing louder than the other or is faster or slower, that can throw off the entire endpoint or the entire individual's mood. So sometimes someone may be expressing what may look like excessive epinephrine or adrenaline as a fight or flight response. And it may be that that level is too high Or it may be that they don't have ample landing gear for their stress response. Maybe their serotonin and GABA is too low. And so we're seeing a louder expression of a maybe normalized level based on that deficiency or low. And so we talk about kind of the synergy and the balance and what is the difference of the inhibitory mellowing out neurotransmitters as opposed to those excitatory stress responders. Wow, that's fantastic. So really what you are really dealing with as well is basically mental health as well. You're helping people to use the body to really, you see the link between the body and and mental health, mind health. Yes, absolutely. And each of these R's will resonate with a reader in a different way in the sense that with conventional medicine model, if you come to your physician depressed or anxious, chances are they're going to start at that rebalancing neurotransmitters, but they're actually not looking at rebalancing. They're looking at adjusting the receptor function on one or maybe two targeted neurotransmitters. <laughs> and okay, so- that's a, if I may interrupt you there, that is such a fantastic point that you've just made because of the whole message of chemical imbalance and depression. It's a, such a reductionistic approach and people are they're kind of missing it, whereas you're looking at this thing completely differently. So if you don't mind, you've made such a good point. Can you just Explain that a little bit more and in a little bit more depth. It's a very, very good point. Rebalancing neurotransmitters. Yes. So I use that as my final R for the readers to first really understand how neurotransmitters are manufactured. And I start to really present that information in the second chapter about resetting the microbiome 
because it's our enteric nervous system or our brain in the gut actually that has over 500 neurons in it and produces a majority of our neurotransmitters, over 90% of our serotonin, over 50% of our dopamine, um, the remaining parts of dopamine made by those adrenal glands. And then, you know, the biome also makes a lot of our GABA, which is perhaps even more so than serotonin, more of a potent anxiolytic or anxiety reducing compound. Uh, GABA is very inhibitory. Um, when we think of like Parkinson's disease, for example, where an individual is dealing with tremors, they are dealing with an issue with how GABA is expressed in their body. And so they're not getting that inhibitory release. Or if you think of like a first date or uh, stepping on stage with bright lights and a microphone, you might get dryness in the mouth or a little bit of a tremor or shake. If you had optimized your GABA, you likely would feel less of that physiological stress response. You'd feel more calm and cool and, and, and not as much on edge, if you will. Um, so every neurotransmitter has its own expression. And I provide for you in the rebalanced neurotransmitter chapter, now that you understand, you know, them, them connecting to the gut and whatnot, and we can go back into that in a moment, but I talk about each of the neurotransmitters. Well, at least I highlight eight of them and I provide to you what you might experience if this is too high or too low, what foods would support the production of, what foods could be overconsumed, which might be why you'd be in an excess state, and then how you can use supplement strategy and food as medicine to try to optimize the expression of them. And, and what I was saying prior is, if you go to a doctor's office and you're being given an SSRI or an SSRNI, very drugs under whatever their name of the maker, this is working on the receptor site of one neurotransmitter and often done blindly, like throwing a dart at a dartboard and taking chance. We're not taking the time often with up-to-date pharmacological resources that we have to look at genetics to look at nutrients that aid as building blocks to make these neurotransmitters or to even test the individual's level of whether they are too high or too low in any of these key players. And so that's when we're not really doing justice of what I find rebalancing that symphony. We're just saying, okay, violin, speak louder and <laughs> tell the other mm. instruments to be quiet. <laughs> I agree. That's fantastic with how you've explained that and very, very vital information for people to understand that you can't just go and find one thing missing and pop one thing in there and that's going to fix the problem. It's You've got to look at the whole, like you've got all those six different points and the great link that you've made with the gut microbiome and mental health neurotransmitters. These are very important links that people need to understand. This episode is made possible by our friends at ButcherBox, my go-to for the best quality meats and fish. Every month, ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild Alaskan salmon directly to your door. And shipping is free. Choose from four curated boxes or customize your own box. With my busy schedule, it's hard to make time for grocery shopping or even meal planning. But... ButcherBox makes everything so simple and so easy. Last night, I made the most delicious and nutritious meal using the wild Alaskan salmon from ButcherBox. For a limited time, get two pounds of salmon and two filet mignons for free, plus $20 off your first box when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash cleanup or enter the promo code cleanup at checkout. 
The link will also be in the show notes. Do you find people respond well to you? Because it's quite a lot of information. It's quite logical to you because, you you know, you and I, we work in this world. But on average, a person who's eating this terrible processed modern American diet, now suddenly they've got all these illnesses and things going wrong and mind issues because you can't separate them out. Do you find it quite difficult to get them to actually respond and process and apply your, your principles? I haven't. I mean, we always have to, as a clinician, you have to meet your patient or client at the readiness and where they're at and be strategic with both removal and abundance. I think that that's equally important. And what I've tried to do with the book, which I think is important, is each chapter also has quizzes. Um, and so it helps the reader to feel empowered. They just, you know, unpacked, like I said, yeah, deep science strategy on concepts that may have big words and <laughs> go into biochemistry and anatomy and physiology, but it allows them in that quiz time to, to have these, aha, this is me. Maybe I need to reread, read this one. You know, everyone's going to start in a different space. For instance, if an individual had to, God forbid, evacuate their home from the hurricane that hit, you know, wherever they were, whether they're in Florida or or Houston or whatnot years ago, then they may have been running on adrenaline and they may have had really significant cortisol impact in their body. And they may really need to hone in on that rebounding adrenals chapter. Whereas a mama that just is maybe actively breastfeeding or maybe just weaned breastfeeding and has carried three children and has been just giving, giving and growing, she may really need to hone in on that restoring micronutrients because she's nutrient depleted. And someone that's dealing with dermatological drama like psoriasis or eczema or bloating or distension, they may really need to hone in on that resetting the microbiome. So, you know, with each of these approaches, they're all um, equally important to foundationally make that mind-body connection work for us, but each of us is going to have a different area that's uh, more expressed of an imbalance, and that's the area where they'd really need to hone in on more of the strategy of layering in those food as medicine recommendations, potentially delving deeper into functional labs within that category, and then layering in the supplement strategy, because we wouldn't be treating adrenal insufficiency and micronutrient deficiency and do a gut cleanse and, you know, all of this stuff at once. Yes, it is too much if you do it that way. So you just do it sequentially over time and you take the, you know, almost triaging the whole situation and then working through it like that, which is very, very good. Just in terms of that, you mentioned about rebounding adrenal health. Can you just talk a little bit about how rebounding adrenal health can actually affect anxiety? Yes. So it's an interesting kind of double-edged sword because the adrenal glands, when they are in overdrive mode, can create expression of anxiety in an individual. And also when they are in a suppressed or insufficient output mode, or as we used to call adrenal fatigue uh, mode, we can still express that anxiety or discomfort. And so cortisol is the primary stress-related hormone that we think of that plays a big role with our energy cascades. It's what peaks in the morning and slowly cascades down throughout the day. Cortisol has very anti-inflammatory mechanisms. It also regulates our blood sugar. It's a glucocorticoid. So it's a steroid hormone that actually supports glucose release. So it can help to stabilize blood sugar levels in times of stress. 
It can also uh, work against us when too high and drive belly fat and blood sugar cravings and cause insomnia and disrupt sleep. But when it is appropriately produced, it will regulate inflammation and it will also regulate histamine amount in the body. It has natural antihistamine effects. So in excess, it's going to be expressed, uh, especially we'll see this with individuals even that have to go on prednisone or a steroid hormone, uh, maybe following uh, really severe bronchitis or um, rheumatoid arthritis or some form of inflammatory need where they might get this, uh, I call it incredible Hulk mode, <laughs> like a, an irritability or anger, um, sleep disturbances, and and just kind of a physiological stress response where it feels like you have to pace or move your body. That, that's what excess cortisol often feels like, especially if that's paired with excess epinephrine or adrenaline. We can get our heart racing and such. But if that lowers over time, then the body can become bombarded with histamine. We'll often see this where individuals will say, oh, it must be a high pollen count. And I'll often say it could be, or it could be that you're burned out. <laughs> what have you been yeah. up to? Uh, very so, good. You know, mm -hmm. Yeah. Histamine, uh, beyond dry itchy eyes and sneezing and those types of things, histamine crosses the blood brain barrier and that can cause also the body to not feel safe and that can cause low level anxiety. So cortisol levels may be very, very low and actually be driving chronic fatigue, but the individual, because they're dealing with more inflammation may be expressing more of that fight or flight response as well. So you can get anxiety in the X or in the burnout mm, mode. Very good. That's excellent. Um, you talked about the fact that you work so much, you work a lot with women and hormones. Can we talk about hormones? Sure. When we're talking about sexual hormones, we look at, I'll just break down estrogen and, and progesterone. And then um, if you have anything else you want to know beyond. Um, so estrogen and progesterone kind of work inversely in many ways uh, or kind of counterpart one another, whereas estrogen is going to be more prone towards blood clot, towards vasoconstriction, and then progesterone will be more of a blood thinner, a vasodilator. Estrogen can have mood stabilizing effects and can prevent depression. Progesterone can be seen to be anxiolytic or reduce anxiety. And we often see progesterone to be low in individuals that are under high stress because there is a mechanism called the pregnenolone steel. <laughs> this is kind of a big concept, but I'll try to unpack it. Uh, and so basically all of our sexual hormone is manufactured through cholesterol and this grandmaster hormone pregnenolone is what makes our estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, as well as our cortisol and our DHEA. And when the body perceives constant survival need, and that could be going through a divorce, that could be trying to survive your three-nager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could be all the things. It could be your job. It could be whatnot. It doesn't mean that you're actually running from a saber-toothed tiger these days, right? That perceived survival will often shunt your progesterone into cortisol. That's called the pregnenolone steel. And so what happens is the body says, okay, I don't know what's going on with Allie, but she is not fit to carry a child right now and we need to survive. So we're going to take this progesterone and make it a survival hormone. And then that can drive more hormonal dysfunction for the, the female body because it can create relative estrogen dominance uh, because the progesterone is not loudly enough 
expressed to create that balance. So even if the individual doesn't have fibroids or isn't, um, you know, dealing with excessive body fat, those are kind of classic things we would see for estrogen dominance. They may experience relative estrogen dominance in light of that low progesterone value. And that in itself can create constant hormone imbalance, mood instability, and getting back into another R, they're all chicken and egg. Uh, there's something called the estrobilome, which is the microbiome that influence estrogenic expression in the body. Mm, <laughs> so exactly. bacteria plays a role then on how estrogen is regulated and these feedback signals. And it kind of all goes back to that square one. Wow, that's fantastic. that's so good. The people have to listen to this a couple of times, but I certainly recommend it because it's very important information. So let's talk about some things that women related to women, things like hot flashes. Let's talk about that because that's something that not only is it a menopausal and perimenopausal symptom, but we're also finding that I don't know if you've come across this, but a lot of younger people are experiencing hot flashes. You know, just the whole, okay, so you know what I'm talking about there. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And can we maybe also address PCOS and maybe a bit of hormonal weight gain? Just touch on a couple of things that I know will grab people's interest. Sure. So the temperature vari variation and change um, in the body can also be tied to the adrenals and can be tied to cortisol, especially if the individual is having waking in the middle of the night or restlessness at sleep time. What's interesting is serotonin is, again, one of the primary known feel-good neurotransmitters. And serotonin is used to manufacture melatonin. So often in the evening time, serotonin levels go down. And so this is where often people get a little bit more either cravings in the evening, right? Or we tend to deal with more anxiety or more restlessness. It's not just that it's silent space. There's actually a mechanism there. And so that in itself can interfere with sleep and serotonin itself and low levels of serotonin can drive hot flashes. Then if cortisol is peaking or that epinephrine or adrenaline and that fight or flight response, that can also drive the flashing. And then it can be mediated by both estrogen and progesterone dips in the body. My favorite baseline tool for that is a magnesium bisglycinate paired with myo-inositol. Bisglycinate form of magnesium actually crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it works like a bodyguard in the brain that does not allow cortisol to be released or, or to hit through that blood-brain barrier. And so taking that in the evening kind of helps to support that deep quality restful sleep and not allow those stress responses to kick up in the middle of the night. That helps to mitigate some of the flash. And then the myo-inositol in there supports ovarian health. So myo-inositol is a compound that's been widely researched for PCOS in particular. It tends to support ovarian tissue, reduce cystic tissue, and also reduce testosterone excess and support female hormone balance as well as progesterone optimization. So this is one that you can take without testing hormones and doesn't have a direct hormone mimicking response, but can be a very good regulator for the body. Wow, that's fantastic. Do you have this information in your book? I do. And I have that supplement in my line. It's called Relax and Regulate in my supplement line. So you can link, I'll give you that link for listeners. And that's a powder that you can take in the evening. That's, that's fantastic. And as far as diet therapy for hormone transition and change, 
my best recommendation is to bring down carbohydrates. And I am a proponent of a whole food approach to ketogenic diet. That's great. I wanted to ask you about keto. So I'm so glad you brought that up. So dive in. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So a couple of reasons. So one, ketones actually cross the blood brain barrier. And they dock with the hypothalamus, which is the H of that HPA axis. Again, that's our fight or flight mechanism for the body. So when ketones cross the blood-brain barrier and they dock to the hypothalamus, they actually provide enhanced leptin response. Leptin is a hormone that creates satiety. Actually, in the Greek language, it translates to the word thin. So we see a lot of research on optimized leptin supporting metabolism, creating, like I said, appetite satiation, so reducing hunger or cravings. But it's so much more. It actually provides safety signaling to this HPA axis so that the pituitary and adrenals can go off guard and the pituitary can focus on the thyroid and the ovaries instead of just stimulating those adrenal glands. So we get a lot of fantastic mm. outcomes by those ketones. Yeah. Just hitting that hypothalamus and optimizing the leptin. And that also is kind of that keto high where people will be like, Oh, I, I finally was able to take my kids for ice cream and I wasn't white knuckling it the whole time. You know, I actually felt like I didn't need it. And that can really create some food freedom for long-term dieters. And then there's mechanisms beyond anxiety of ketones. Well, you know, the ketogenic diet really started with epilepsy because not only with that crossing the blood-brain barrier does it do that work for the hypothalamus and leptin, but it also enhances GABA expression, which again, I had said earlier, GABA is the compound that reduces that physiological tremor or stress response. So you get this kind of feeling of calm. And then on a metabolism side, when the body is in a approach of a lower carbohydrate diet, the blood sugar level becomes normalized. Instead of these mountain peaks and valleys of irregularity, we are able to access our body fat as fuel if we're restricting calories. And so we're actually able to go into like the deep freezer of our body fat reserve and produce ketones out of our fat stores, which is going to enhance body composition change. Uh, there's muscle sparing effects when we make ketones, so that maintains our active metabolism. And then there is that idea that when we're using fat as fuel, we can use both fat in the diet as well as our body fat as fuel. And so we can see these dynamic body composition changes as well that are very favorable if we've seen metabolic change that's been unfavorable following hormonal transition. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. So it's definitely safe for women to do keto. Yeah, and I use it actually as a number one intervention for PCOS and infertility because we see that nutritional ketosis can actually improve the FSH and LH ratio, so the follicular stimulating and luteinizing hormone balance in the body. That's made by the pituitary again. So when you support by making ketones and you tell the brain it's safe, then it actually has more favorable downstream effect on the regulation of hormone in the body. And if you think of the two interventions for infertility, it's usually nowadays metformin, which is to reduce glucose levels and to bring insulin down because insulin interferes with our sexual hormone binding globulin. Well, when you don't eat carbs or you don't eat too much, you don't have insulin spikes. So you don't need to take metformin. You just do the keto diet and that brings your blood sugar level stably low. And the other one, Clomid, is a slingshot to the pituitary. And like I said, when you, when those ketones cross the blood-brain barrier, the pituitary functions more appropriately. Oh, that's fantastically explained. 
One of my New Year's resolutions is to work out more and stay more active. In order to maintain a regular workout routine, it's so vital to stretch and take care of your body pre and post workout. One of my secrets to helping my body recover and feel amazing is my Theragun, an easy to use and absolutely amazing handheld percussive therapy device. I use my Theragun before my Orange Theory workout classes to help wake up my muscles and after my workouts to help with muscle recovery and even during the day to help relieve any stress related to sitting or standing too long. I have already noticed a difference since using my Theragun device. Stiffness, knots and soreness are no longer issues. And just for my listeners, Theragun is offering an amazing deal. Visit www.theragun.com forward slash leaf and you'll get two free attachments with any purchase. The link will also be in the show notes. So um, those people are doing keto, but not everyone does it correctly. So can you give a kind of explanation of how do people do keto correctly? And and should anyone, sorry, should anyone not be doing keto, you know, in your experience? Oh, great questions. Yeah, I, I'm equally as impassioned on the pros of a whole food ketogenic diet as I am passionate about doing keto wrong and not doing it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, the big issues that I see are, uh, you know, we, we should not demonize any macronutrient and we definitely should not seek to replace foods that got us into trouble in the first place in a ketofied form. And what I mean by that <laughs> is if you, uh, you know, are experiencing 30 or something plus pounds of weight gain because of maybe hormone imbalance driving cravings, right, or neurotransmitter imbalance driving cravings or addictive tendencies or using food to cope with emotions or whatnot, maybe you tear off that Band-Aid of the carb restriction and you're getting good results, but now you want to make a keto donut and now you want to make a keto cake and X, Y, Z, you start to use a lot of non-caloric sweeteners. These are things that I don't include in any of my protocols, even including things like stevia, monk fruit, allulose, and chances are as this airs, there'll be another new kid on the block. <laughs> These non-caloric sweeteners, and these are the natural ones to be clear. There's of course then the chemically derived non-caloric sweeteners like the Splenda, right? And so forth. Almost all of them are going to be bacteriostatic and stevia is included in that. There are research studies on stevia. And what this means is that they sterilize the microbiome. And so that can work against that production space for our neurotransmitters. So over time with a sterilized biome, then we're not going to have that enhanced mood and balance uh, mindset as far as food cravings go. Um, also that creates a constant addiction to sweet and to a false flavor profile. So if you're eating, you know, eating these non-caloric sweeteners on a daily basis, and then you go to a wedding, you're going to want wedding cake. You know, mm. that's required to say sweet is safe. Well, it's not a ketified one, but I'll just break the diet and fall off. Uh, if you channel savory in your real food keto approach, um, if you create a palate that wants Brussels sprouts and sirloin, <laughs> if you create a palate that enjoys egg yolk and fresh herbs and salads, then you experience a different level of food freedom that isn't tricking yourself when you're out in the real world and you don't have these snacks. And also you're supporting with prebiotic fibers by not going too tight of carb restriction. 
you are going to be supporting a good microbiome because you're making short chain fatty acids, you're feeding the probacteria. And so it's really important that we both avoid the non-caloric sweeteners. And we also are mindful of liberalizing our carbohydrates to fit our metabolic flexibility. And what that means is you might start tight 30 grams of carb restriction for keto, but you don't want to live in that avenue. You want to find your metabolic flexibility, which means based on your muscle mass and your movement, you may be able to have a quarter cup of sweet potato daily and still be ketogenic. You may be able to incorporate many of my recipes will use banana, raw unfiltered honey, grade B maple syrup. And these are the sweeteners that I use in my indulgent recipes. Now it would be one banana for 12 muffins, right? So <laughs> you're getting a total of two to three grams of carbs per zucchini collagen muffin, let's say. But many people get in a mindset that's too myopic where they would say, oh, I see the word banana. That's not keto. I can't eat it. But there's a bunch of ingredients like corn fiber and erythritol and XYZ on this bar, but the bar says keto, so I'll eat it. Mm, that's where the disconnect, I think, doesn't serve us. I think that's brilliant. What you said is so absolutely important because it's become such a trend now, like anything becomes a trend and then everything's suddenly keto and you can buy all these products and they're not necessarily good for you. Right, So right. just related to what you've just said, so this carb cycling um, can it heal hormone imbalances? Can it help? Or how does it? How does carb cycling heal hormone imbalances? Yeah, so I distinguish carb cycling outside of uh, metabolic flexibility. So my book has uh, two phases. So it has a phase one, and, and technically it has three, but so it has a phase one, a phase 1.5, and then a phase two. And so phase one is like a, a more classic nutritional ketosis where we would keep fruits out and starchy vegetables and really teach the body, especially pending on that individual's metabolic handicap, meaning, you know, what level of insulin resistance are they coming in at? How much body fat do they have? How active are they? Because that's going to influence how easy that individual's body will make ketones. For instance, infants that are breastfed, babies in utero are 40%, their brains are running on ketones and babies that are breastfed are making ketones. And so we're all wired as these hybrid machines. It's just that we have taxed our systems with an excessive carbohydrate intake that the body's forgotten that biochemical process. We have to start radical to reteach the body. And so that's this phase one is the tight, tight carb restriction. And then phase 1.5 is where I live and where I encourage people to try to expand into. And that's that metabolic flexibility where you might look like somewhere between 45 to 60 grams of carbs in a day. So that might mean that you can have half an apple with almond butter. And that might mean that you can have, like I said, those sweet potatoes with your Brussels sprouts and your wild salmon. And so that can start to open the gates of these quote unquote non-keto foods and, and just eat real foods. But then there's phase two, which is, yes, a, a low glycemic diet, which expands carbs into 90 or 120 grams of carbs. And that's what I would pulse in to carb cycle. And so I do use this in women as a intervention, especially women that are at a low percent body fat or an ideal body weight. And it all comes down to that hormone leptin again that I mentioned earlier. So if you have insulin resistance, you likely have leptin resistance where you're not getting that satiety signaling and that's leading to chronic overeating and weight gain and so forth. Well, as you first go keto, now the leptin is being optimized. Now you're satiated. You feel free from cravings. Over time, 
Leptin is made from the consumption of fat with the intestines sensing fat intake. And leptin is made otherwise from your body fat reserves being broken and produced into ketones. If you don't have the body fat reserves, so let's say you're at an ideal body weight and maybe you're under eating your fat, maybe you're a busy mom and or you're doing a spin class and over caffeinating and under sleeping, leptin levels may over time become depleted or lower than ideal. And when leptin levels drop, this can interfere with ovulation. Because remember earlier I said leptin is not just satiety, it's safety. It tells the body it's safe. And so what I do is I have women carb cycle about three to four days post ovulation and at days one and two of their menstrual cycle. So probably like days one and two and days 18 and 19, let's say in general for a 28 day cycling female. Wow. That's incredible. What about someone who, this is fantastic information. What about someone who's actually got amenorrhea? You mentioned that earlier on. Yeah. Can the keto diet help with that or carb cycling? It can. Um, so with amenorrhea, usually it follows over-restrictive eating or it follows excessive output, like a high-intensive athlete um, or a very significant traumatic stress response, like in a PTSD. And so again, the body just says, nope, we're not going to ovulate. We're not. This isn't safe, essentially, right? And so in this individual, they likely would just launch into my phase two to do like a refeeding protocol. And then um, over time, we'd potentially play with that phase one to 1.5 to phase two rebound bounce. And then there are women that, you know, postmenopausal women that aren't following a 28 day menstrual cycle that fall into a category that would still benefit from carb cycling. And I recommend that they either follow the moon, meaning, you know, when the, when the moon is full, we think of that as ovulation. When the new moon we think of as menstrual cycle. So you can follow the moon and carb cycle, you know, three to four days after full moon and then at new moon. Or you can follow also a freedom factor of your social calendar, you know, and you choose two days a month or, you know, two to four uh, max a month of times that you feel it would be appropriate or you would like to indulge. And you might consume three to four choices of carbohydrate foods, which if you're typically consuming, let's say 45 grams of carbs, then that would put you up to 75 to 90 and the idea is that you're kind of slingshotting your blood sugar and insulin response and and the leptin is insulinogenic so when that insulin goes up you actually surge out some leptin that tells the body it's safe and that helps to manage that maintenance in the body versus the restrictive carbs and the long-term ketosis starting to function as a stressor to that individual. Yeah, because that could go swing the other way, couldn't it? If, you, if you're too strict on keto and you keep those carbs at under 20 for too yes. long, you could start having all kinds of negative, in, negative results. Yes, and I will say I rarely see that, though, to be fair, for an individual that still has more than 30 pounds of body fat to lose because they're able to make that leptin from their body fat reserves. So, But once they're very thin or once they're at their ideal, they don't have that excess, then, it's, then it starts swinging to the dangerous side, doesn't it? Exactly, and it's the type A women, I deal with many of them, uh, that want just that 5 to 10 pounds that aren't in that 30-pound category that don't want, you know, they want to be aggressive, they want to see it now, 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 more and more more and more. And they're the ones that can tip themselves into imbalance, I think, easier um, because they just try to kind of white knuckle it. Mm, that's true. And then you start seeing all the little extra side effects like hair loss and all that kind of stuff too that can happen. 
Yes. And I think of hair loss really as a protein uh, deficiency or not getting enough protein. And if you follow, I, I don't follow, as you'll see in my book with the phase one, phase 1.5 and phase two, a classic ketogenic diet as one would for neurological disease or epilepsy, where we're talking about a four to one ratio. That's not necessary for an individual to produce ketones. So I don't protein restrict as much as a classic macro pie chart would. And when we do that, it's really not serving the body for optimal metabolism or nutrients. I always make sure everyone gets a minimum of 60 grams of protein a day, regardless of what their macro calculation looks like. So you might need to override that suggested 42 grams and write the word 60. And you know, each ounce of biological protein is seven grams. So that means really about nine to 10 ounces of protein a day, which truly a lot of people aren't getting, especially if they're only eating one meal a day or something like that. Oh, wow. This is brilliant. And you've got this kind of information in your book and on your site and people can contact you for this as well. Before we go to the last, I just want to ask you, you're running out of time and I want to respect your time. You mentioned that probiotics are nature's Prozac. Can you elaborate on this? And how do we get more probiotics in our diet? And what about prebiotics? And you just, you've got such a lot of fantastic information. I, I need to get this question in as well. <laughs> no, I love it. Yeah. So I talked earlier, right, about how the microbiome, which is 100 trillion cells in our body, three to five pounds, really plays a big role in manufacturing our neurotransmitters. Well, if our gut is in a symbiotic state, that means that the microbiome is working for us. And that would mean that we would have bowel regularity. We would have no issues with bloating or distension or belching or flatulence. Uh, we would have uh, more nutrients that are actually created based on our microbiome, as well as enhanced absorption because that gut bacteria is working to help break down our food particles. And that also means in a symbiotic gut that we are making more serotonin and GABA. So when your gut bacteria is optimized, you actually produce the serotonin. And that's what I was saying is nature's Prozac. Now in a dysbiotic gut, this means that there could be overgrowth of yeast, like potentially candida. This could be overgrowth of a pathogenic bacteria. This could be seen with a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. In a dysbiotic state, you get the opposite of all of that. So you're going to have bloating, distension, bowel irregularity, nutrient deficiency. You're going to be more prone towards immune sensitivity or vulnerability. You're going to be more prone towards inflammation. And not only are you not producing the serotonin and GABA, your body actually starts to produce more epinephrine as a fight or flight response from that dysbiosis. And you also put out other markers that actually drive gut integrity issues like leaky gut because your immune system is saying this balance is off. We need to get rid of it. We need to get rid of it. And so we actually see markers like LPS and secretory IgA, these gut lining markers go off when your bacteria is off. And not only do you not have the serotonin and GABA to tell your body it's safe, it's fine, I'm okay. You have the epinephrine, the bells and whistles, the adrenaline saying, something's wrong, something's wrong. <laughs> and so often I find an underlying mechanism of anxiety or like vasovagal symptoms. If we're talking about dizziness, heart palpitations, blood pressure irregularities or arrhythmia, all stemming back to the microbiome because that enteric nervous system can really control the autonomic nervous system response in our body. So taking probiotics, 
can be one way to try to, you know, inoculate and support a symbiotic gut. So we can include cultured foods uh, like kimchi, sauerkraut, cultured yogurts and such, kombucha, varied beverages that are available. I am a big fan also of live active cultured probiotic supplements. And I have a couple within my line with varied approaches, but oftentimes an individual will take a probiotic or eat a probiotic food and they'll say, oh, one client said to me, I felt like an atom bomb went off in my belly. (laughs) I said, whoa. Yeah, I said, well, that means that your gut was in a dysbiotic state, meaning that there was a bad troop in in your, uh, you know, a bad army set up in your gut in the playing field. And you tried to provoke with a good army and you got a battle, right? So if you have a bowel evacuation or a bowel urgency following consumption of a probiotic, or you get cramping or belching or flatulence or mood issues or uh, palpitations or sweats, that's a sign that you need to actually pause the probiotics and do a gut cleanse. I give you the the whole protocol in my book, um, but you need to plow the gut before you can repollinate in many spaces. Um, and often those individuals had been treated with antibiotics or steroids, oral birth control, contraceptives. These can all interfere with microbiome balance. And um, so if you don't tolerate those foods, Don't just quit there. Know that that's your body telling you it needs help to reset the microbiome. Fantastic. Oh, this is absolutely fantastic information. If you love listening to my podcasts and want to take your mental health healing journey to the next level, then I want to invite you to my 2020 Mental Health Solutions Summit, December 3rd through 5th in Dallas, Texas. The core focus of this conference is to give you simple, practical, applicable, scalable, and scientific solutions to help you take back control of your mental health and to help others and to make impactful changes in your community. You will learn how to manage the day-to-day stressors of life, as well as those acute stressors that blindside us. Our goal is to address your most pressing mental health concerns, help you find answers and equip you with the knowledge and the resources that you need to make the change from living a life of barely surviving to one where you are thriving. There will be sessions on addiction recovery, sex and mental health, how to help your child become stress resilient and manage anxiety, how to detox your brain, nutrition tips to boost mental and physical health, and so much more. Early bird tickets are on sale now, so hurry and get yours today before prices increase on March 31st. We also have limited VIP tickets that include special private Q&A sessions with me and meet and greets with myself, and there are discounts available for groups. For more information and to register today, visit drleafconference.com. The link will also be in the show notes. Okay. Okay. Is it, do you, have you got time for one more question? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. What is, what is your take on hormone replacement therapy, specifically bioidentical hormone replacement therapy? Uh, I'm a proponent with testing. So I would say that is really important. You know, I, I am a proponent of if you're to use hormone at all, it should absolutely be bioidentical in order for most of the hormone out there. And I, I'm pretty passionate about 
the influence of birth control because I don't think that many people really understand what they're signing up for. Mm, <laughs> they're taking right. these exogenous hormones. It's sold to help to resolve your acne and you know ensure you don't get pregnant and all is good and go on. And then we're dealing with infertility such significantly on the rise because for a decade plus, women are taking synthetic hormone that is suppressing their ovarian function. And then they think when they say, I do, they stop taking it and their bodies can be ready. And that's just not the case. You know, uh, the synthetic hormone, it can mimic hormone expression in the body, but it is not going to truly express in the same way. And it can ultimately suppress the gland of focus in hormone productivity, as well as drive a lot of nutrient deficiencies. So, you know, in any phase of the game, um, whether we're talking about hormone replacement with perimenopause or as a contraceptive, I'm a big proponent of really understand the mechanisms of synthetic hormones. And often, unfortunately, especially it's the progestins, the synthetic progesterone, those are big mood influencers. And I've seen so many dynamic negative responses, especially in individuals with PMDD and otherwise PMS and mood disturbances. Whereas the bioidentical hormones are going to be identical in molecular structure to what the body makes. They're often going to be like yam derived, both for the estrogens and the progesterones. But I would say very loudly, don't do this blindly. Ensure that if you're using bioidentical, you're testing at least semi-annually. And I am a big proponent of uh, salivary testing for um, steroid hormone to really get a good understanding of what's freely available and actually available at the cellular level. As when we run a serum test on hormone, it's not really as sensitive of a marker and not a good way to ensure your dosage is appropriate. The salivary is really more appropriate to work with your practitioner with the HRT. That's fantastic. That's excellent information. And you've mentioned this a couple of times about supplements. You've explained quite a bit, but you do have a supplement line. Can you just very quickly talk a little bit about supplements? Because there's just so many out there. It's scary. It's even dangerous. How should we approach taking supplements? Absolutely. And something as simple as like fish oil, right? If we buy at, there was a big news release a couple of years ago about, it was one of the, I think, Costco brands of fish oil that had soybean oil in it, <laughs> the majority fat. And so absolutely opposite of what you're looking to do as a consumer. Soybean oil is an omega-6 pro-inflammatory compound. Probably that source was also GMO, who knows? And then, you know, fish oil is an omega-3 anti-inflammatory. And so we have to be sure that there's good manufacturing practices. You should always see GMP stamped on a bottle. But even furthermore, I look for brands that are pharmaceutical grade. So my naturally nourished supplement line is all pharmaceutical grade, third-party tested. So that means that a company aside from myself and my manufacturer is testing for potency, purity, as as well as mold and toxins. And you want to ensure that this third-party testing is done on a line that you're taking so that you feel safe, that you are not harming your body with the use of the product, and also that the formula is effective. There's turmeric products out there, for instance, where you're looking at 100 milligrams. Well, a 
capsule of my super turmeric is a thousand milligrams. So this is a very different picture. <laughs> you could take 10 as opposed to one and, and you're wondering why it doesn't work. Uh, so efficacy and potency um, as well as safety are all things to, to take into strong consideration. And my supplement line is, is found at AllieMillerRD.com and it's called Naturally Nourished Supplements. Oh, that's fantastic. And if people want to get hold of you, is that the best place or where is the best? Because we'll put this all in the show notes for people. Yeah, well. yeah. I mean, for true like live engagement, I'm really active on my Instagram at Allie Miller RD. And it's just like, it sounds it's um, A-L-I-M-I-L-L-E-R-R-D. And I'm doing daily stories. So for people that kind of click on like that circle up top of what my three and a half year old's eating, what we're doing in my household, all the things, that's a great kind of daily dose of just how to keep it all balanced. And then I'm at Allie Miller RD on Twitter and Facebook. And then, yeah, we keep it really simple. The website is just AllieMillerRD.com. Yeah, it's got lots of good advice and, and lots of help and guidelines with labs and all kinds of stuff on your website. So thank you. You've been absolutely fantastic. Such a great source of information. And I really appreciate all the effort that you put into your work and into this interview as well. I know so many people are going to benefit. So thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Dr. Leaf. It was a fun conversation. It's been great. I've learned so much too. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.